What's up, Red Oak? Hey, y'all awake? Yeah, I'm looking forward to having dinner tonight. It's going to be awesome. It always is. Delicious. Um, This weekend, uh, me and Zach and Devin were in Kentucky at a men's conference. And um, I was on the phone Friday night. And it was like 1030, something like that. It's pretty dark. And uh, walking around, I don't know if you're ever in Kentucky or not, but they have animals. And um, we were on top of this mountain, and I was walking on this road, no street lights, and, uh, and I was like, what is that coming towards me? I didn't know if it was like a llama or like something really large. And, um, and so I, I pulled out my uh, headlamp, and I shined it on it, and lo and behold, it was a massive buck. And I haven't seen a deer since I moved from Winston, because where are they at up here? You know, you live in the mountains. But, uh, and, uh, and I was like, it was kind of like, but it wasn't like too dark, you know, so like the, the, the headlamp didn't hit him all the way. And he was really bold, and he just kind of stayed. And then as I got closer, I realized he wasn't alone. But he had like six does who were around him. And then I got like 20 feet from this buck before he decided to, and like, and then he ran. But I was really scared. Because I was like, I'm like, I'm glad I have, I was glad I had my pistol because I was like, I could kill a deer right here. But we were at Christian camp. I don't want to do that. But it was like, the headlamp was, was not that bright in the, in the dark, like on top of the mountain. And has anybody been spelunking? Yeah? It's super dark in a cave, like in the earth, you know? And, and so the, that same headlamp would have been way brighter in the utter darkness of the cave. And, and just like what Spencer just said, we're going to see the gospel shine super bright through an extremely dark passage tonight. It's, it's, it's very, very dark. And, and you would think like, okay, great. We're going to take a time out from the Joseph narrative. And we're going to look and see what is going on in Genesis 38. And so you would think, since this is a pause in the Joseph story, um, we get a break from the dysfunction of Jacob's family. Nope. Sorry, no break. But what we're going to do, and I think what, what the Lord is, is doing here, is he, he's focusing us in. right? He, he's taking the, the lens and he's zooming in on Judah, who's one of Joseph's older brothers, And we're going to see how God works through dysfunction, selfishness, death, disobedience, selfish sex, blame shifting, deceit, prostitution, and scandal. God works through all of those things for his redemptive purposes. And it's unbelievable, but he does. Right? This is a seriously, like, I couldn't think of another word to describe this chapter as I was studying besides scandalous. This is a completely scandalous chapter, right? And it's all about Judah. He's the fourth son of unloved Leah. You remember her? Yeah, Leah was Laban's oldest daughter, and he tricked Jacob into marrying her. And Leah had baggage from her father. She also had baggage from her husband because he had played favorites. He, he loved Rachel more than Leah. And all of that would take 
and have serious consequences for the rest of their life. And so if, if Leah had baggage because of that, do you think Judah right? He had a lot of baggage from Jacob's favoritism as well. And, and so we, we're going to see a little bit of that play out. And we've already learned, right, from last chapter, that we know Judah's a leader amongst his 12 brothers. He, he's a leader. He's one of the oldest. We know that his brothers listened to him. Because instead of killing Joseph, he was like, let's just, let's not kill him, let's sell him. Let's make some profit off of him, right? And so we know that they sold Joseph into slavery and they listened to Judah, so we know he's a leader. And so we pick up in chapter 38, after Judah and his brothers have tricked their dad into believing that Joseph is dead, right? And so let's pray, and then we're going to dive in, all right? Holy Spirit... We need you to speak to us. We don't need to hear anything I have to say tonight. We need to hear your word, and we need your spirit to, to help us to understand. We need you, Holy Spirit, to open up our minds, open up the eyes of our hearts, grant to us understanding. I pray that we would, we would turn away from our sinful, selfish, wicked ways, and we would turn to you in repentance and in faith. And pray that your gospel would shine ever brightly tonight. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Verse 1, it happened at the time that Judah went down from his brothers and turned aside to a certain Adulamite whose name was Hirah. So Judah gets a new friend, right? He leaves his brothers, and he gets a new friend. And there Judah saw the daughter of a certain Canaanite whose name was Shua. And we, we never get Judah's wife's name in this passage. We just know that it's the daughter of Shua. He took her, went into her, conceived, bore a son. He called his name Er, or E-R, whatever you want to say. She conceived again, bore a son, called his name Onan. Yet again, she bore a son, and yet again, called his name Shelah. And Judah was in Chezeb when she bore him. So Judah has left his brothers, abandoned his brothers. Like, I'm leaving the family farm. I'm not hanging out with you guys anymore. I'm not going to work with you guys anymore. I'm going to go do my own thing. And so we're introduced to his friend, Hirah. In verse 2, probably extremely dark, although it doesn't seem like it from like a, if you just, the cursory reading of the text, you're like, this is not very dark, but Judah was, he's not a gentleman, okay? He, he's, not, he's not a romancer. He's not, a, he's not a faithful husband. Verse 2 says that he saw and he took. All right, in his commentary, Ian Dugan draws a line between those two words, saw and took. And he draws a line throughout Genesis for helping us to understand how dark this really is. And this is what he says. Saw and took is language that is suggestive of lustful desire and transgression. Eve saw and took the forbidden fruit in Genesis 3.6. The flood was precipitated by the sons of God seeing and taking the daughters of men, Genesis 6.2. And also Pharaoh saw and took Sarah, Genesis 12.15. And Shechem saw and took Dinah, Genesis 34.2. So these two verses, right, we already see that Judah's not painted in a good light. And he also knows that he's not supposed to marry a Canaanite woman, right? He knows that 
from Abraham and Isaac. They made that very clear, but he does it anyway. He doesn't listen. He doesn't care. He disobeys. And so he ends up having three sons by this Canaanite woman. And his sons' names are Er, Onan, and Shelah. This is giving us a framework for Judah's family unit to help us understand. Look at verse 6. It says, Judah took a wife for Er, his firstborn son, and her name was Tamar. And so we're introduced to Tamar, who is Judah's daughter-in-law. But Er, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord put him to death. This is a really big deal. Okay? This is a really big deal. It's, it's kind of reminiscent of Sodom and Gomorrah. This is, this is the only time that we see in, in the Bible so far that an individual is put to death because of their actions. So this individual has done something so grievous that, that God intervenes and takes his life as righteous judgment, just wrath of God immediate because the wages of sin is death. And so we see God swiftly take air out of the situation. And this is definitely not the main point of the story, but I think it's a good reminder for us that all evil God condemns. All wickedness God condemns. Verse 8, then Judah said to Onan, go into your brother's wife and perform the duty of brother-in-law to her and raise up offspring for your brother. And so Judah, dad, gives Onan, second son, instructions. He says, hey, second born, carry out the practice of leveret marriage in that culture. All right, and this was intended to continue the memory of the deceased brother, to continue the family line of the dead husband. And to provide children, to provide an heir for the deceased, and to help the poor widow that has been left behind. But we know that it says next verse, verse 9, that Onan did not do that. That he, he didn't do it because he knew that the offspring wouldn't be his. That he wouldn't be the receiver of the double blessing of the inheritance. It would actually be the son if he was to actually fulfill what he was supposed to do. And so it says he wasted the seed on the ground and he, and he doesn't give offspring. He doesn't listen and obey. He does what's wicked in the sight of the Lord. And because of that, he's put to death. And so Judah has two sons now who have died. And he says to Tamar, just go back to your father's house because Shelah, my third son, is too young to be married right now. And so that was his excuse. Yet it says that he feared that his third son would die if he gave him to Tamar. And so Tamar went and remained in her father's house. So we see that Onan has deliberately disobeyed his father's instructions. He doesn't provide an heir for his brother. He doesn't care for or protect Tamar. He doesn't want to provide the offspring because he wanted to be first. He was selfish. He was looking after his, himself. Now, we weren't told why Er died. Like, we weren't told why God killed Er, but we, were, we do know why Onan died, because of his wicked acts. And he wasn't only disrespectful and disobedient, but extremely selfish. He simply used Tamar for selfish pleasure, and he deprived her of the gift of and the blessing of children. 
The language used in verse 9, if you look at it in your Bibles, implies that this was not a one-time crime. This is not a one-time act. But whenever it says whenever, it's a repeated offense that was wicked in the sight of the Lord. And so the Lord takes him out. And Shelah, Judah's youngest son, he's like, man, you're too young. Tamar, just wait. He's too young. We're not going to do that right now. And so she gets sent away. Judah thinks that Tamar is cursed. He thinks that if I give Shelah to Tamar, then he's going to die too because there's something wrong with her. She's immoral. She's wicked because my two sons are dead. Can you, I don't know if you can, but I could not put myself in Tamar's shoes. Right, like she's twice widowed. She's been taken advantage of. She's childless. She's rejected. Right, she's sent away. She's abused by those who were supposed to protect her. She has nothing because those who were supposed to provide for her failed to provide. This is extremely dark. I found myself asking the same question over and over again, like, what good could come out of this horrible situation? Like, what, what, what possible good could come out of this? And we aren't told how much time transpires, but the story continues in verse 12, and it says, in the course of time, in the course of time, the wife of Judah, Shua's daughter, died. And so, we find out that Judah is now a widower. And when Judah was comforted, that means when the time of his mourning for his wife was over, he went up to Timnah to his sheep shearers, he and his friends. So he's back with his buddy. And when Tamar was told, your father-in-law is going up to Timnah to shear sheep, she goes into a plan of action. She knew exactly what she was doing. And she knew that Shelah was old enough to be her husband. But Judah has failed to fulfill the Leverite practice and provide a husband for her. And so she was smart and paid attention. And she's got a plan. And when Judah saw her, he thought that she was a prostitute for she'd covered her face and he turned to her at the roadside and said, come, let me come into you. And for he didn't know that it was his daughter-in-law. And she said, what will you give me? And he answered, I'll, I'll send you a young goat. And, and she said, what about a pledge first? So the pledge, if you have to understand, this is a very business transaction, okay? It, this is a down payment. Th this was a temporary deposit until the full payment would come later, so she's all business, and, and he says, what pledge should I give you? And, and she's, she said, your signet, your cord, your staff that's in your hand. Essentially, this is Judah giving her his wallet with his license and his, his social security number, essentially. This is what he's doing. Unmistakable who these things are. So he gave them to her willingly, went in, and then she conceived and 
rose, went away, took off her veil, put on garments of her widowhood, and because the business transaction was over, the plan was successful. Judah, in this passage, does the unspeakable, an ignoble, and a dishonorable, a selfish thing, to say the least. How... How much did he have to be so sexually immoral and sexually promiscuous that she would know this would work? You think about that? She tricks him to continue the line, to get an heir. She, she gets him to do what his sons would not do and what he wouldn't do. He wouldn't provide for her and she, she took matters into her own hands. Right? This is... This is absolutely outrageous, right? Why would God include something like this in the Bible? Because God triumphs over evil all the time. Evil inside and evil outside, every time. And when Judah sent the goat that he had said he'd sent by his friend, he didn't even go back himself. He sends it by his friend, to go get his pledge from the woman. He's asked, he asked the man in the place, his buddy says, hey, where's that, where's the cult prostitute that was on the road? And they said, there's no, there's been no cult prostitute here. And so he returned to Judah and said, I have not found her. Also, the men in the place said, there's no cult prostitute here. And immediately, they're like, oh man, we've been played. I'm not going to get that stuff back. I'm not going to get back my wallet. I'm not going to get back my ID. That stuff's gone, right? So he realizes, he knows he's been tricked, but he has no idea the full extent yet. But he will soon. He'll soon find out. It's absolutely incredible how much lying, trickery, and deceit just transpires in Jacob's family. Kent Hughes points this out. This is absolutely fascinating. Three generations of deceit were now complete, each involving an item of identity and a goat. Jacob deceived Isaac by wearing a goat skin. Judah deceived Jacob by dipping Joseph's robe in goat's blood. And now Tamar has deceived Judah, and the deceit involved disguise, items of identity, and a goat. Is that not fascinating? So Tamar is pregnant by Judah directly, not by one of his sons. And so she starts to show in the first trimester. Look at verse 24. About three months later, Judah was told, Tamar, your daughter-in-law has been immoral. Moreover, she is pregnant by immorality. And Judah said, bring her out and let her be burned. Very judgmental. And as she was being brought out, she sent word to her father-in-law, by the man to whom these belong, I am pregnant. And she said, please identify whose these are, the signet and the cord and the staff. And Judah identified them and said, she is more righteous than I, since I did not give her to my son, Shelah, and he did not know her again. So Judah is really seedy, right? This, is a, this whole story is so sordid. It's so full of, of ignoble actions and, and motives, right? It's absolutely scandalous. 
And it doesn't seem like Judah's any better than his wicked sons. So it's unbelievable that God would allow him to live. It's only because of God's mercy that he isn't struck dead. Because he's an absolute hypocrite with a double standard in this passage. Right? He's about to kill her for immorality when he himself is guilty of immorality. Right? Tamar's defense against these accusations is Judah's pledge to her. Can you imagine the look on Judah's face? She's going to the stake to be burned. Can you imagine the look on Judah's face when she goes, hey, um, I'm pregnant by whoever's these are. Do you, rec- you recognize who, who's, who's these are? How ironic that Judah would go to his father and say, hey, uh, do you recognize this robe? Do you know whose this is? And then Hey, Judah, Judah, whose are these? Is this your wallet? Is this your ID? Is this your social security number? And he's completely, utterly caught, shamed, taken off his high horse. Right? And Tamar is automatically vindicated, automatically saved. Right? She, she's not cursed. It was never her in the first place. Right? Judah acknowledges his failure as a father and as a father-in-law. He acknowledges that he's failed to be righteous. He acknowledges that he's failed to provide. Surely she's more righteous than I. And righteous in this passage means that Judah's saying that Tamar's justified, that she's in the right. It's the same word that's used in Psalm 82.3, give justice to the weak and to the fatherless, maintain the right of the afflicted and the destitute. So Tamar made a morally correct decision, for she had surely heard of the family blessing. Having been married to two of Judah's sons before, she'd heard about the blessing given to Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob. And her eyes were set on the inheritance, bringing about an heir. And because of her faith in the future of what God was going to do, she is remembered forever. Look at verses 27 through 30. And when the time of her labor came, there were twins in her womb. And when she was in labor, one put out a hand and the midwife took and tied a scarlet thread on his hand saying, this one came out first. But as he drew back his hand, behold, his brother came out. And she said, what a breach you have made for yourself. Therefore, his name was called Perez. Afterwards, his brother came out with a scarlet thread on his hand and his name was called Zerah. So Tamar had twins, two sons, Perez and Zerah. And Perez means breach. And he is in the genealogy of Jesus. He is the son of Judah directly. Perez is the father of two families of Judah, he, the Hezronites and the Hamulites. From the Hezronites came the royal line of David and of Christ. In Genesis 49, Jacob is giving a blessing to his sons, the inheritance speech, if you will. And this is what he says in verse 11. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. Perez is also mentioned in Ruth chapter 4, verses 18 through 22, where we get the genealogy of David. So the blessing that Jacob gave to Judah would come true 
kings would come through his lineage. Right, but not just the greatest king Israel ever had in King David, but the king of kings also. For Tamar and Perez both are named in Matthew 1 in the genealogy of Jesus. This is the beginning of the gospel. This is how the New Testament starts. This is how it's transitioned from Old Testament to New Testament. After 400 years of silence, this is what God's word says. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of who? Perez. And Zerah by Tamar. And Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram, and Ram the father of Aminadab, and Aminadab the father of Nashan, and Nashan the father of Salmon, and Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of David the king. Talk about vindication. Right? Tamar is one of only five women named in Jesus' genealogy. Alan Ross points out the main reason for Genesis 38 being put in the story for the context of Israel, to remind the people that God has providentially protected the community from corruption in the family, therefore ensuring the continuation of the line. The promised seed would not be cut off. God's covenant with Israel would not be stopped because you can't stop God's sovereign plan. Even sin, even despite the sins of the people, his plan would come to fulfillment. So through scandal, God brings salvation to the nations. Through scandal, four of those five women were Gentiles. That means the gospel, the, the salvation is not just for the Jews. It's, it's for all peoples. It's for all nations, right? Genesis 38 is absolutely outrageous. Right? It's a horrible story. It's extremely scandalous. But the point is not to demonize Judah. The point is not to celebrate and praise Tamar for preserving the promised seed. The point is to be in awe of God's mercy and his grace. That's the point of this chapter, to be in awe of how only God could take the wicked plans of men, the, the selfish acts of men, and bring about good from them. Be in awe that God chose to use a Canaanite woman to be a matriarch in Israel. You know what's even more scandalous than this story? What could be more scandalous than this story? What could be more scandalous than the Judah Tamar story? The Jesus story. God choosing a virgin girl to conceive the Messiah. God taking on flesh and entering into this broken world. A light entering the darkness. Scandal. I had to look up that word. I've heard it a long time. Scandal is defined as causing general public outrage. Outrage over an offense against morality. Outrage over an offense against the law. So it's scandalous that God would choose four Gentile women 
to be in the line of the Messiah prior to Mary. It's outrageous that Mary was engaged and found to be with child before she's married to Joseph. It's outrageous that the eternal God would put himself in human flesh. The limitless one would confine himself to the body of a baby boy. It's outrageous that he would leave glory and come and enter into our grossness. It's outrageous that he would grow up fully obedient to his parents, fully obedient to the Father. It's outrageous that this perfect one would be betrayed, mocked, falsely accused, and beaten. It's outrageous that immoral man would spit in the face of holy God. It's outrageous that Jesus would be rejected, mistreated, abused, sent away to die like a common criminal. It's outrageous that Jesus would not fight back. It's outrageous that he didn't hold up a pledge, that he he didn't open his mouth. He didn't defend himself. It's outrageous that he would die in my place. It's outrageous. It should have been me on that cross. I deserved that. Jesus didn't. This is the gospel. This is Jesus taking my place. It's outrageous, but it's true. It's incomprehensible mercy that God's mercy and grace would triumph over evil because only God, only God can bring salvation to the nations through scandal. So be in awe. Be in awe of God's mercy. Be in awe of his grace over your life that Jesus is salvation, a light of revelation to the Gentiles and of glory for Israel. Be in awe of how our God can bring light out of such darkness. He did it for you He did it for me. If he did it back then, he can still do it today. Today, here and all over the world, be in awe of our God. Let's pray. Lord, we are in awe of your gospel. We deserve what Aaron Onan got. We don't deserve your mercy. We don't deserve your grace. Lord, and it's, it's just absolutely scandalous that you would bring salvation to anyone, especially to the nations. And so we praise you for this great salvation that you have made available to us through Jesus. Jesus, we thank you for taking our place, for doing what we could never do. We thank you for not leaving us alone when you left this earth, risen, vindicated, glorious, alive. We thank you for sending your precious Holy Spirit to be with us now, to speak to us through your word, to guide us, to convict us of sin. Lord, I pray that we would walk in the power of your spirit and not in our flesh. And I pray if there's anybody here tonight who's never experienced the awe, the beauty, the wonder 
of your gospel that you would open their eyes right now. For your glory, for our joy, and for the good of everyone. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.